You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. We just finished a series through the book of Ephesians. If you missed some of those and you'd like to listen to them, uh, they are available on the web um, at, at our website. You can listen to maybe studies you've missed. Uh, we're going to put out an MP3 with the whole series on it. And um, we're excited about our upcoming series through the book of Philippians. Philippians is an amazing book. Uh, I believe that you'll be challenged. I believe if your heart is open, you'll be changed. Uh, you'll be transformed uh, by the Word of God. And really the, the major theme of the book of Philippians is joy. That we can find joy in the midst of whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in. And Paul, as he pins this letter, is in a Roman prison. And yet he finds joy in the midst of that. He finds joy in the midst of the fact that he is about to be put to death as he is going to face Caesar with the accusation and the allegation of insurrectionism, of being an insurrectionist, that is, trying to usurp the power and the authority of Rome. And so Paul had a lot of stuff going on. Paul had a lot looming over his head, and yet he found joy, and he wrote to these people, this church, and he said, look, have joy. Rejoice in the Lord. And he says it constantly through this letter. And Philippi, of course, is a city in Greece, or uh, biblically Macedonia, but it was also a Roman colony. And so they had all the rights and privileges of Roman citizens. Philippi was, as um, Luke calls it in the book of Acts, the foremost city of Macedonia. It was a hub of commerce. It wasn't the capital of Greece or Macedonia, but it was certainly the place from which everything else in that region was influenced. And Philippi was a growing city. It was a thriving city. Economically, they were doing very well. Philippi was a very open-minded city, as was all of Greece. Philippi had many different religions, many different gods they worshipped, temples all over the place. And yet, the true and the living God was nowhere to be found. And the, the gospel of Jesus had not yet reached them. They, they were completely ignorant to the truth of Jesus Christ. And Paul plants a church here in Philippi some 11 years previous to writing this letter to them. He had planted a church among them. And I don't normally have you do this, but I'm going to have you flip in your Bibles back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. Because here we find the context for this church plant that... Paul was a part of. It was on his second missionary journey. They had just returned from Jerusalem after their first missionary journey because the Jews and the Gentiles were having division amongst themselves as to what the Gentiles really needed to do. The Jews were saying, well, you need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law. And there was, there was a real division amongst them. And so Paul said, let's take care of this. And so they went to Jerusalem and they, they had what was called the Jerusalem Council and they determined what it was that God was requiring 
of the Gentiles. And after that, Paul and Barnabas said, you know what, we need to go back and we need to visit the places that we planted churches. We need to encourage the brothers and the sisters. And we need, we need to just go and see what God is doing amongst them. But then Paul and Barnabas had a bit of a division over a guy by the name of John Mark who was the writer of the Gospel of Mark. And later Paul would say was very useful to him in the ministry. But at this time, John Mark had flaked out on them. And Paul said, you know what, I'm not bringing him again. So if you want to bring him, you're going to go your own way and I'll go my own way. And Barnabas said, fine, I'll go my own way. I believe in John Mark. He's my nephew and I think, I think he's a good guy and I think he's worthy of a second chance. And so they parted ways. And Paul took Silas and they headed out to Asia Minor. And if you pick it up in verse 6 of Acts 16, it says, Now when they had gone through Pergia in the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. And so, in whatever way, and however it came about, the Spirit did not allow Paul and Silas, and actually Luke as well, did not allow them to go into Asia. He, he didn't permit them, put a stop to that. And so, passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And so Paul is sleeping, he gets this vision, and he sees a man of Macedonia, or of Greece, who stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so they wanted to go to Asia Minor and visit the churches they had planted. But instead, the, the Spirit led them to go to Greece. And, and God used this vision of a man pleading with them, Come and, and help us out. And so therefore, verse 11, Sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony, colony of Rome. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. And so this city was so uninfluenced by the things of the Bible and by the true and living God, that there weren't even ten Jewish men in that city to make a synagogue, to, to have a, a place of worship. There weren't even ten men in that place who worshipped the true God. And so here's Paul and Silas and Luke. They're in the midst of this city that is totally godless. And we might think of Las Vegas, but, but even in Las Vegas, there's, there's all kinds of churches and there's all kinds of ministry going on in Las Vegas. We might have to think of cities across the world, maybe like Bangkok or Amsterdam, where it is so godless and so opposed to the things of the Lord. And, and there's really very little going on in terms of the spread of the gospel, at least from what you can see when you're there. It's, it's totally given over to the things of the flesh. And so here is Paul and his team of men. They, they feel called to be there, and yet they're not seeing this man of Macedonia. They're not seeing what God 
had showed them. And they go down to the river and they meet some women there. Which is interesting because it was a man that had called them in the vision. And yet Paul was sensitive enough, as we're going to see, to realize that, hey, whoever we ran across, we're going to minister to them. It wasn't like he had to find this particular guy. And they were down there by the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And they found some women there praying. And a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, which, interestingly enough, was known for its purple dyed cloth. And here is Lydia, really not from Philippi, not from Greece, and yet she happens to be there at the time that Paul is there, and Paul ministers to her, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So here was the beginning of the church in Philippi with one woman who just happened to be there at that time. And Paul is able to minister to her and to lead her to Christ and to actually plant a church there in her house. Apparently, she had relocated there. But then as they continue their ministry, things got really tough for them in Philippi. Because they run into this this young girl who's possessed with demons, who is actually a slave of some men, and her job is to speak to the dead and to tell people their future and to tell people what their loved ones weren't able to tell them before they went on. And you see that kind of stuff going on on late night TV. John Edwards and, and these other psychics, you know, that supposedly can tell you your future. They can talk to the dead and, and all of this nonsense. And it's, it's just nothing but divination. It's nothing but the worship of the devil and of demons. And this is what was happening in this girl's life. This is what was defining her. And she was actually making a living at it and profiting her slave owners a great deal. But then she ran into Paul and to Silas and and she came to know Christ. Well, her slave owners, her masters, weren't too stoked about the fact that now she's saved, the demons have been exorcised from her, And she's no longer calling on the dead. She's no longer giving people their fortunes. And now they're losing money. And so they're ticked. And so they arrest and have arrested Paul and Silas. And they say that they're there to usurp the power of Rome and to put their God in the place of Caesar. And you know that the Romans believe that there was no God under heaven except Caesar. And so... They have them imprisoned. Here's Paul and Silas there just to do the work of the Lord and to share the gospel. And they find themselves in prison, which wouldn't be so bad, except now their clothes are stripped off of them. Their backs are laid bare and they are whipped like rented mules over and over and over again. Their backs were laid open. Then they were thrown into a cell, a cold cell, without any food and told, to go to sleep. Silas was pretty bummed about this. He wasn't too thrilled with his new missionary venture. But Paul was like, you know what? This is standard. 
This is, this is what I've been called to. And Paul said, Silas, we're going to worship. We're going to worship the Lord. And if you read on in, in Acts 16, you'll see this story. And they worshiped the Lord that night, which is really kind of convicting in the sense that we come to church and, and maybe we burnt the roast or maybe we had a fight with our spouse or maybe the kids weren't doing what we wanted them to do or the car didn't start or whatever happened that morning and we're just like, I can't worship, you know, I just, I can't do it. And, and yet here's Paul bleeding in pain and yet he says, you know what, we're going to worship. And they worshiped the Lord that night and actually the prison doors were opened and they were able to, to just run off if they wanted to. And you think about any prison that you're familiar with. If the prison doors opened and it was just like nothing but blue sky out in front, do you think anybody's hanging out? They're running for their lives. And here is Paul and Silas's opportunity. I mean, the prayers must have been answered, right? The, the, we've been on every prayer chain. The prayers have been answered, but no... They didn't run. They didn't leave because they knew they were there for a purpose. And the, the jailer called out basically in fear because he knew that if any of the prisoners were unaccounted for, he would give his life for that. And so he was paranoid. He probably had the sword to his throat already rather than being tortured by his Roman superior officers. And Paul calls out to him and he says, look, we're all here. And Paul is able to lead the jailer and his whole household to Christ. And so here is the beginnings of this church in Philippi. Some women down by the river, a demon-possessed girl, the jailer and his family. And that's how this church got started. And 11 years later, Paul now writes a letter to them. And now this church is established now this church is thriving, it's growing, and how do we know that? Well, we know it by the way that Paul addresses them. And Paul ended the book of Ephesians with prayer. He concluded that awesome study with prayer. Now he'll begin this letter with the same topic, with prayer. And Paul was an amazing man of prayer. He, he's constantly praying for people. Throughout all of his letters, he says, I, I, I'm praying for you all the time. I'm thinking of you. I'm making mention of you in my prayers. And if you think about all of the people that he said that to, you, you come to the conclusion that Paul was a serious man of prayer and that he prayed for people constantly. And he prays for the Philippians. And as we make our way through our text this morning, we're going to see four things about Paul's prayer. First, who Paul prays for then how Paul prays for them, then why Paul prays for them, and then finally what Paul prays for them. And so the first thing is who Paul prays for. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so who Paul prays for? The first thing he says is the saints. And then he says the bishops and the deacons. And so this church was established. It's clear because there were many people who now knew Jesus, as Paul calls them, saints. There were bishops or overseers, pastors and leaders and elders in that church. There were deacons, those people that were serving 
and taking care of the practical needs in the body. Paul addresses this church. And it's interesting because he says to all the saints, and that word saints in the original is the word hagios, and we've come to understand that word to mean set apart, to mean holy, to mean people that know Jesus. And, and that really is the line of demarcation for every human being. You either are a saint or you're not a saint. You're either a believer or you're not a believer. That's the bottom line. And we've come to understand that term saint. Now some groups have kind of taken that and they've venerated people and they worship people and it's praying to saints and all that. And I'm not talking about that. But we understand the word saint as a Christian. But if you go back to the time of Paul, as he uses this word hagios, it was a word that would describe any number of worshipers. And in Philippi, that could describe the worshipers of a myriad of gods. Diana, the, the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of sex, the, the god of money. It, it could describe any number of gods. And yet Paul says, I call and I write to you saints, to the hagios. He uses this pagan term that they would have been familiar with, someone who is a worshiper, someone who is devoted to that thing. And he captures it and he uses it for the purposes of Christianity. The same with the word bishops here. It's episkopos. That word would have described any number of overseers. Certainly pastors in the church. But before that it described military leaders. Political leaders. Leaders in all areas of life. Episkopos. And Paul takes these words and these terms and he captures them to describe Jesus and the things of God. And I think we can learn a really valuable lesson in that. In that we are to take the ancient text of the Bible and make it relevant to the listeners in our community. The people that are listening. We take words that are familiar to them and attach them to things and truths of the Bible. Because if we use terms that are now ancient terms. To them, they were contemporary. I mean, it was cutting edge, hagios. Just like the hymns that we sing today are old to our ears, but in the 17th century or the 16th century, when they were written, I mean, they were cutting edge. They, they were bar tunes, the, the, the melodies that they were put to. And so I think we can learn a valuable lesson from Paul here in taking timeless truths and describing them with timely and relevant and culturally understood terms. That's what we learn here. We see who Paul prays for. He prays for this church there in Philippi. And then we see how Paul prays for them in verses 3 and 4. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. And so as Paul prays for them, this is how he prays for them. First of all, with thankfulness. He thanked God for them. Because one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter is to thank them for the gift that they had given him. 
This church at Philippi was the only church recorded in his scripture to actually support Paul financially. And he's thanking them for that. He, he's letting them know how appreciative he is for their generous gift and for their support for his ministry. And he says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Man, every time I think about you guys, Lydia, every time I think about you and, and, and the awesome time we had there by the river and how I was able to lead you to Christ and how you invited me into your home and we, we planted a church and, and, and man, that young girl who, who were, we were able to capture out of the flames of hell and from demon possession and the Philippian jailer who in one moment was beating me and the next moment we're singing praises together as I'm leading him to Jesus. And Paul has just awesome memories of these people. And he says, I thank my God for you. And in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy. It wasn't a burden. You know, sometimes praying for people is like a burden. It's like, oh, I got to do this. Okay. And it's hard and it's arduous. And man, I just don't want to do this. And Paul says, when I prayed for you, it was with joy. As Paul prays for them, it's with thankfulness and it's with joy. And I want us to just think a moment and examine our hearts and think about how people perceive us. When they remember us, when they think about us, is it with thankfulness? Is it with joy? Is our life that kind of influence on people where they're joyful and thankful for us? Is that how our neighbors think of us? Is that how our family thinks of us? Is that how our spouse thinks of us? Is that how our extended family thinks of us? Is it with thankfulness and joy? That's how we want to be perceived. And we will be perceived that way when we give people Jesus. When we love people the way Jesus loves them. People will want to be around us. When we talk about them. When you are engaged in their life. And you take concern for them. People that have a lot of friends. People that are attractive to others. People that others want to be around. Are people that take interest in others' lives, not people that talk about themselves or brag about themselves or complain or murmur or gossip. Those aren't the kind of people you want to be around. And so we understand that conceptually, but then we don't apply that personally. What kind of a person are we? Are we the type of person that people have thankfulness and joy when they remember us? And so we've seen who Paul prays for. We've seen how he prays for them. And then in verses 5 through 8, we see why Paul prays for them. He says, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And so we see why Paul prays for them. First he says, for your fellowship in the gospel. They had fellowship. Now that's a word we toss around and churches are even called that you know 
Prineville Bible Fellowship. What, what, is, what is fellowship? And, and we might even say, yeah, we're going to have some food and we're going to have fellowship. What, what does that word mean? Well, simply put, the word means to have something in common. And see, much of what we call fellowship really isn't fellowship. Much of what we call fellowship is really just small talk, shooting the breeze, passing the time. You know, the weather, sports, and, and there's always kind of that, that awkward sort of small talk dynamic that I'm not really good at, and, and as a pastor, you kind of have to be, and, and, and I struggle sometimes with that. You know, and, and you can always tell there's like that awkward sort of silence, and then it's like, so, um, it's been nice lately, hasn't it? It's like, uh, yeah, uh, not really, but sure. And you're thinking in your mind, no, it's been raining like crazy. But yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, yeah, it's been awesome. I mean, yeah, how about how about them Seahawks? Yeah, they're, you haven't ever watched a game in your life. You're like, oh, yeah, they're, they're great. And, and there's this kind of just weird small talk that, that we feel like we have to do. And that really isn't fellowship. Fellowship is beyond weather or sports or, hey, how are the kids? Fellowship is getting down to that thing that we have in common. And what we have in common as believers is Jesus. And so until we begin to, to open up and to talk about what Jesus is doing in us and, and how excited we are about Him, we're really not entering into fellowship. And there's nothing wrong with small talk, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with talking about the weather or sports. I mean, I talk about that stuff all the time. But it's really not fellowship. And so if we really want to experience the, the fellowship that Paul talks about here, then that's where it's found. It's found in Jesus. And that's why he says, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, from the first day that I met you guys, we had this fellowship. We had Jesus in common. And it was amazing. And this is why he prays for them. Another reason he prays for them is because he's confident. And that word means to have trust in based on experience. That because you've seen God work and you've seen Him come through in the past, that you're confident in Him. And that's one of the awesome things about walking with the Lord for a long time is you see God work and you remember the things that God has done. And you say, you know what? I've been through this before. God's going to come through. Or you can encourage other people. You know, I know you're struggling in this area, but can I tell you something? Can I tell you what God's done in my life? And, and you don't say it arrogantly, and you don't say it to minimize their pain, but you just say it to share a testimony, to encourage them in, in the Lord. And, and that's what he says, I'm confident in the Lord. Not in you, not confident in you at all. I'm confident of this very thing, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. That is, bring it to maturity, to completion, to the finish line until the day of Jesus Christ, which is, of course, that day that we are going to stand before Him and we're going to be glorified and we're not going to have sin to deal with anymore and our Failures and our weaknesses are no longer going to be an issue. And Paul says, man, I know, I am confident, I am sure that God's going to do that. 
And I know that you see a lot of weaknesses in your life, and I know that you see a lot of failings, but here's the thing. The work that he started, that little flame that he ignited in your heart, Lydia, that day down by the river, well, guess what? He's going to carry it to completion. And he would say the same thing to you and to me this morning. In, in, in all of the sin and all of the flesh and all of your mistakes and all of the stuff that you see in your life that you think, man, how could God even want to have any kind of a relationship with me? And know this, that God is going to finish the work He started in you. But we're confident in the Lord, not in ourselves. Our confidence is not in us, it's not in somebody else, it's in the Lord. And here's the application for us, is that we all have people in our life who disappoint us. If you don't, you're probably not alive, you know, or you just don't have any expectations for anybody. And there's those kind of people that just don't care. They're just like disengaged from life. They're like in a coma. And, and of course, those kind of people aren't going to be disappointed because they don't care about anything. But most of us, if you care at all about life, you're going to be disappointed by people. You're going to be disappointed by me. You're going to be disappointed by your spouse. You're going to be disappointed by your coworkers or by your employees or by your boss or by your friends by your neighbor whose dog poops in your yard all the time. You're going to be disappointed by people. It's just part of life. But here's the thing. Remember that the God that started the work in them will carry it to completion. And you see all of the faults and all of the failings in people in your life, and you think, man, I just want to give up on them. Maybe you think, I just want to give up on myself. And, and God says, no, I will finish the work. I will complete it. And so place your confidence in Jesus in, in their life. Remember what He's doing behind the scenes. Pray for them. And it will create patience in you as you remember that we're all a work in progress. And so this is how and why Paul prays for them. He says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you because I have you in my heart. And in Again, he says that I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And so he's talking about carrying people on your heart. When they said affection, the, the word was the bowels. It, it was the seedbed of emotions. And, and we would say now the heart. And so Paul is saying, you know what? I pray for you guys because you're on my heart. This is the reason Paul prayed for them. Another reason is because they were on his heart. The people that we pray for are people that are on our hearts. The people we don't pray for are people that aren't on our hearts. And you know that people are on your heart when you care about them, when you're concerned for them, when you pray for them, when you forgive them, when you tolerate their weaknesses, when you bear with their weaknesses and struggle through this journey with them. That's how you know that people are on your heart. And if you're a person that is just not praying for people, it's because you don't care about people. If you're a person that just comes into the church and sits and then blows doors out of here and never talks to people, it's because you really don't care about people. That's the bottom line. You're not carrying people on your heart. If you're a person that never thinks about others, is only thinking about yourself, and you're self-consumed, what might be called narcissistic, and all you think about is how things affect you. Maybe you would call it being myopic. 
nearsighted, thinking only about yourself, seeing things only through your lens and sphere, man, that is a really sad place to be. And it's a very easy place for all of us to be. And it's one of the themes of Philippians is humility, is selflessness. And Paul says, man, I have you on my heart. When I'm traveling around, even though I'm being shipwrecked, I'm being starved to death, I'm imprisoned, even though I'm being persecuted, guess what? You're on my heart. I'm not saying, you know what? I mean, if I had more time, then yeah, you'd be on my heart. Or if I wasn't going through this great trial, then you'd be on my heart. No, Paul says, you're on my heart. I love you guys. You mean so much to me that I pray for you, that I love you, that I'm willing to set aside my needs for yours. You guys, you can't read this without being pierced in your heart because we are such selfish people. We're so self-consumed. We're so unconcerned about anyone other than ourselves. And Paul says, man, I have you on my heart. And really what would come to mind is the Old Testament priest. And you remember that they were to wear an ephod. And on that ephod would be 12 jewels representing each of the tribes of Israel. And it would show them symbolically, it would show the people as the priest would go around and minister, it would show them symbolically that he had them on his heart. And you know what, you guys? I, I want to, and I, and I don't say that I have this perfected by any means, but man, you guys are on my heart. And, and that's, that's really what it is to be a pastor. And, and that's what people probably don't understand about being a pastor is, is the fact that, that you're thinking about people all the time. And, you, you know, you're not able to experience just normalcy uh, at times because you're concerned about people. And, and people are on your heart. And, and the person that's not walking with the Lord anymore or, or the person that is struggling in their marriage, the, the family that is going through financial difficulty, you're carrying them on your heart. That's what it means. And you know what? I hope that I'm not the only person in this church that's carrying people on his heart. Because that's what we're all called to do, is to carry each other on our hearts. It is to be concerned. Is to pick up the phone and to call that person that you talked with on Sunday that said they were going through this difficulty. And so you call them on Thursday and you ask them how they're doing. And you, and you pray for them on Sunday as they're telling you the story. Instead of walking away going, Lord bless you, you, you pray for them. And you say, you know, can I, can I lift you up in prayer? And, and then you call them on Thursday or whatever day and, and, and you pray for them again. And you're, they're on your heart. That's what Paul is talking about. That's why Paul prays for them. It's very simple because he cared about them. Do we care about people? you care about anybody other than yourself? And the last thing that we see here is what Paul prays for them, verses 9 through 11. That's important because as we examine the prayers of the Bible, they are completely different polar opposites from our prayers. You listen to people pray, and oftentimes our prayers are, are very worldly-centered they're, they're, Lord, give me this, and, and Lord, take care of that, and, and Lord, make this happen. And Lord, I've already made this decision, but please make it work. 
And, and these are our prayers. But when you read the prayers of the Bible, man, they're deep and there's, there's something very dynamic about them because it's eternally minded. When you read Paul's prayers, he had things of eternity in mind. When you read the prayer of Daniel in the book of Daniel, they're different than our prayers which just means that we need to begin to rethink prayer and we need to begin to, to look at the, the biblical prayers and begin to model our prayers after those. And here we see what Paul prays for them. And there's really four things that he prays for them about. He says, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. That your love may abound. That's the first thing that he prays for, that love would abound. And the word that he uses here is agape, that agape love would abound. And we need to understand what that is and really what its opposite is. There were several words in the Greek language that would describe love. And we have one English word and we use it for everything and we just kind of understand it in its context. We know that we don't love our dog the same way we love our mom or we don't love ice cream the same way we love our spouse. You know, we understand in context how we're using it. But they would actually use different words. And they had storge love, which was a family love. They had eros love, which was, yes, a sexual love, was a a, a love based on physical attraction. But really how we should define it was selfish love, conditional love. And they had phileo love, which was a brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And and then they had what they called agape love. And, and again, the New Testament writers really seized upon that word agapeo. And they, and they used it for the love that would describe God's love. And the way they used it was the love of a mother. And eros and agapeo were really kind of polar opposites. We think of eros as like, you know, sexual love, kind of like dirty love, lust and stuff. And it's not all that. It, it does produce, and the word erotic came from that word eros, but it's not all about that. We would need to describe it more like selfish love. And here's the best way to think of it. Eros love was really the love that a child has for its mother. You think about it. A child loves its mother as long as it's being fed, as long as it's being clothed, as long as it's being hugged and nurtured and burped and the diapers are being changed. Then there's love flowing. But don't do those things for an hour or two hours and see what kind of love starts to be exchanged from baby to mother. Not a lot of love going on there. That was Eros love. It was conditional love. It was love that said, if you do this, then I'll love you. Agape love was unconditional love. It was sacrificial love. And the best way we can describe it is the love of a mother toward a child. You think about all that a child puts a mom through. Ruins her body. Body's never the same. Some women's hair falls out. It changes color. Their body's never the same shape again. They have stretch marks. It ruins their life for nine months. They're puking and, you know, can't sleep and they're uncomfortable and they're hot. And they, they have weird cravings and they gain all kinds of weight that they struggle to, to put off for the rest of their lives. It, it, it ruins, um, you know, 
relationships for a time, you know, it's just like major tension in the house and, it, you know, the emotions are running high. It ruins sex lives, you know, for, for a, like a year, it seems like. It's just like, it's why, you know, Andrew's like, you want to have more kids? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's worth it, you know. It's like a year of just like, put everything on hold, you know. And it, it's, kids ruin your life for a time. And But there's so much joy and there's so much happiness and there's so much love from that mother to that child. And you have to be a mother to even understand. I don't even know that I understand as a father. There, there's so much unconditional love. Here that baby has just pretty much single-handedly destroyed this woman's life and yet she loves that child with everything she has. And you moms know what I'm talking about. That was agape love. And and this is the kind of love that Paul is describing here when he says, This I pray, that you would have unselfish, unconditional love for one another, and that it would abound still more and more, just abounding and growing and flourishing. You guys, that's what people look for in our midst. That's what the early church was doing was loving one another and it made an impact on their society and on their culture. You guys, we need to love each other. It's kind of taking that idea of having people on your heart the next step. It means that when we have a work day at somebody's house, that you take that day and you go and help. It means when somebody needs a meal because they're sick or they had a baby or, or whatever's going on, that, that you make a meal for that person. Very practical ways that we can show love means when you hear about somebody that's hurting in the body, that you're there to minister to them, whether it be financially, whether it be to, to go and to mow their lawn or to clean their house or to do laundry for them, or whatever the case may be. That's what we need to be doing, that our love would abound still more and more, and listen, in knowledge and discernment. So Paul says, look, I want you to love each other, but I want your love to be in knowledge and in discernment. So in other words, love sometimes has to challenge people and confront people and discern good and evil and say, you know what, man, I love you too much to let you get away with this. You know what, friend, I love you too much to, to, to not tell you. And it would be a lot easier for me to just let this go. But can I tell you something? Man, the way you talk to people is, is just really rude. And, and I just want to let you know that. And, and I want to say it in love, but you've got you've to begin to have some compassion in the tone that you use when you talk to people. Or whatever. You know, man, I've just seen the way that, you, that you're interacting with your wife, and, and I want to challenge you with something. I, I want to challenge you that you need to love your wife. Or woman to woman. You know what? The other day when we were with that group of ladies and, and you were running your husband down, man, that, that isn't cool. You can't do that. How can I help you? How can I pray for you? Is there things that, that are going on that, that you need help in? Cause, because that's not right. And see, we might lose a friend. If that person's immature, they might say, you know what, you're judging me, bro. <laughs> and, and they might cast us off and we might not talk to them for two, three six months, or maybe ever. You, you may lose a friend. But love, at times, has to confront people, has to challenge people. Jesus did it. Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
I mean, that's pretty direct. When's the last time you said that to somebody? You know, sometimes you have to be direct. Sometimes you have to say things that might hurt their feelings. But because you love the person beforehand, if they really think about it, they're going to understand that you love them because they remember all of the ways that you demonstrated love to them. So this is the thing. If you don't know somebody, don't do it. Don't challenge and confront people you don't know. Like if you just met somebody at church and you notice a flaw, probably not a good idea to confront them on it yet. Show them love. Get to know them. Build relationships. Then you have the foundation in the ground from which to do that. You, you've, you've earned that right, hopefully. But again, if the person's immature, they're not going to listen to you. And that's okay. You've done what you can do. And you still keep loving them and praying for them. And you're willing to lose a friend or to lose the peace in that relationship. And and you're risking the fact that now they're going to go talk bad about you. Hey, it is what it is. But a lot of people say, well, I'm just too nice and I, I just love people too much and I could never do that. No, here's the bottom line. You're a coward. That is the bottom line. We have to be honest with what is really going on. You're a coward. You're afraid that they won't like you anymore. You're afraid that they'll talk bad about you. Hey, it's a natural propensity that we all have. Believe me, I'm, I'm kind of a blunt guy, kind of a confrontational guy. But it's not always easy for me to do that. It's not always easy for me to confront people. It's always awkward. It's always tough. It's always a challenge. You're always risking that now that person's not going to like you. And there's been plenty of times where I've just not done it. And when we don't do it, it's because we're afraid, not because we love them too much. Love would allow us and would motivate us to do the right thing. And so Paul says, man, I want your love to abound. He also prays for them that they would approve the things that are excellent, that excellence would be approved in their life. You guys, this is really key, that we would approve the things that are good and that we would reject the things that are not good. It's very simple. But that we would filter everything through the grid of, is this from the Lord or is this from my flesh or the devil or the world? Because there's the lies of the devil, there's the lure of the world, there's the lust of our flesh, and all of those things are out there. And we need to approve the things that are excellent. We need to chase after and seek after righteousness and goodness and the things of the Lord and reject and resist the things that are not of the Lord. And that's a simple thing. And I don't think there's a person here that doesn't understand that. We may not be appropriating that, but we all understand it. But there's another application to this verse that I want us to to think about when he says that you would approve the things that are excellent. And it kind of goes in line with being disappointed with people. And that is that in our life, in our marriages especially, this is a a great word for those of you that are married. In, In your relationships with your kids, in your relationships across the board, this is a really key thing for us to apply. And that is that we would approve the things that are excellent. Because you know what our human nature is to do? Our human nature is to point out all of the flaws. To only see that which is wrong with the person and hey it's really easy to do right it's really easy to notice all of the flaws in people but what paul is telling us here 
I think as an aside application, is approve the things that are excellent. And it might only be one thing in that person's life. And you need to focus on that one thing. Man, there are, there are a lot of people in my life, in, in my past, people that have hurt me and wronged me, people that I don't like, people that drive me insane. And when I think about them, man, all of those thoughts come up, all the negativity, all the stuff I don't like. All the things that they've done to me that are that are wrong, and I and I think about all of that, and that's what we dwell on, and, and maybe that's the kind of relationship that you've got with your spouse right now, that you're just totally dwelling on everything you don't like about that person. And here's the thing: you need to begin to approve the things that are excellent. Begin to focus on the things that are positive in that relationship, and it might only be one thing right now. But as you begin to focus on that, and you begin to affirm them in that, you'll begin to notice other things. And you'll begin to see more about them that you, that you love and that you appreciate as you remove yourself from the negative, from all that you don't like. Man, that, that is a huge word for us today. Approve the things that are excellent. And, and again, I, I stand up here as a guy that is not real good at that. I, ask my wife. You know, it's very easy for me to say, you know, you're kind of unorganized and, and I don't like that. Or, you know, you, you, I don't like some of this and I don't like that. And, and it's very easy for me to point out the things that I don't like because I'm, I'm kind of a, a perfectionist in a lot of ways. And, man, don't think my wife has it easy being married to me because it's not. You ladies... You have it good, you know, because I'm kind of a I'm kind of a perfectionist and kind of anal and and I like things a certain way. And, you know, the Lord is is showing me that that approving the things that are excellent is is key. Looking at those things that we enjoy about the person. And, And guess what? It might only be one thing. You might say, well, you don't know who I'm married to. You don't know my kids. You don't know the family that I came from. Hey, there's always something that we can look to. And, and we can begin to cultivate. And we can begin to build upon. A third thing that Paul prays for is that they would be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Sincere and without offense. Really what he's saying is that, that they would be sincere and that they would be right that's what that word without offense it means blameless it means right without accusation and paul is saying look you can be sincere but be sincerely wrong and and many people are that way and we we allow that when it comes to religion don't we well he's sincere about it i mean he he's just really into that and even though it's not right i mean he's sincere about it as if that's good enough as if being sincere is going to fly and, and think about that applied in any other aspect of life. Think about that with your pharmacist, for example. If, if you went to your pharmacist and, and, and you were prescribed a certain medication, a certain antibiotic, and you get back anthrax, and, and you take the anthrax, and now you're, you're sick and you're dying, and, and somebody says to you, man, what happened? Oh, well, my pharmacist, I mean, God bless him, he's sincere, but he just made a mistake, you know. I mean, that would be ridiculous. And so to be sincere but to be wrong is not good enough. Paul also, it's deception is what it is. 
Paul also says, well, look, you can also be right and blameless, but not be sincere. And that's called hypocrisy. And I think that's where many in the church are at. Hey, we're right. We know we have the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. But we're not sincere about it. It hasn't gripped our heart. Jesus hasn't captured us. And there's no sincerity in our lives. And so we're hypocrites. And this word sincere, it's really a neat word. Because the, the meaning of it really just sort of opens up the application. And the meaning of this word is literally without wax. Because back in, in this time, in ancient times, of course, most things were, were made out of pottery. And really fine pottery was hard to come by. And, and the, if you know anything about pottery, you know this, that the thinner it is... The, the more expensive it is, it, the, the, the rarer it is, it, it's hard to find very thin pottery that, that is made well. And in this time, it wasn't any different. And so the very fine pottery would be thin, and it would be very fragile, and it would break easily. Especially as they removed it from the wheel... And they placed it in the oven. And even in the oven, because of its thin density, sometimes there would be holes that would be created. And so businessmen who don't want to lose money, who maybe have bought this pottery and now it's got holes in it, or maybe they've spent all day making this pottery and now it's got some holes in it, they would take it out of the oven and they'd be like, oh man. And so they would put wax in it, in the holes. And then they would sell it. But a savvy consumer of pottery would take that piece of pottery outside and hold it up to the sun. And if they didn't see any cracks or any evidence of wax, then they would say, this pot, this piece of pottery is sincera. It's without wax. And that's what Paul is describing here. He's saying your life, when held up to the Word of God, when held up to the light, of Jesus Christ. Is it without wax or is it filled with holes? Is it filled with your own man-made ways of filling in those cracks in your life? And we can see right through them. We, we can see right through that kind of thing. And what Paul is saying here is that God wants sincerity. He wants our lives to be without wax. And the last thing he says there in verse 11, is that we would be filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That we would be fruitful. And the Bible is, is filled with admonition and exhortation to be fruitful. That we would bear fruits of the Spirit. That is so key for us. And Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And, and we talk a lot about fruit and talk a lot about the fact that you never walk through an orchard and hear trees just groaning in agony as they're trying to produce fruit. It's just a natural byproduct of who they are and what they are. And, and because they're abiding in the vine, the branches bear fruit. But there's something else about fruit that's, that's really applicable. And, and that is that you never see a tree consume its own fruit. Fruit is always consumed by others. 
And in our culture and our society, I mean, we live with a lot of junk food, and I grew up with it. I mean, I've told you guys when I was a kid, I got two bucks for allowance. I spent all of it on candy. I've grown up with candy, and so you kind of lose that that love for natural fruit and sweetness, and you kind of lose that the taste buds for how sweet a good peach is, or or nectarine, or an apple, or whatever. But in that culture. They ate bread for most meals. Only rich people got to eat meat. Maybe they would eat some lentil soup. And only really rich people got to eat fruit. It was very rare. And here Paul is saying, I want your life to be filled with fruit. That is sweetness. Because they would automatically understand what that means, that there was something special about that, that there was something really, really unique and that it couldn't be produced, that fruit has to be grown naturally, and that if it wasn't used, it would rot, and that when it was consumed properly, when it was the right ripeness, there was nothing like it. And are people able to consume the fruit of our life? We sang this morning that Jesus is like honey to our lips, that Jesus is the sweetness about us. You guys, Jesus is the best thing about you. It's Jesus. Nothing else. Jesus is the best thing about you. He's the best thing about me. He's the best thing about this church. He is the fruit that we want other people to partake of. And when we abide in Him, we'll bear much fruit. Just make your home in Him. Be watered as that tree. Be watered by the Word. Be fed by the Word. Be nourished through prayer and spending time with Jesus and fellowshipping with other believers and fruit will begin to abound in your life. Fruit not for you to consume, not even necessarily for you to notice, but fruit for other people to consume, fruit for other people to be blessed by, fruit for other people to go, man, that is sweet. I I needed that. That's what we're called to, to bear much fruit for the benefit of others. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we thank you for this amazing little book called Philippians. Lord, that is filled with so many challenges, so much convicting truth. Lord, that we would find joy in the midst of our trials and struggles. Lord, many of us here are going through difficulties. And Lord, we haven't found joy. And I pray this morning that we would leave here finding joy in You, as Paul did. And Lord, I pray that all of these things that we, that we spoke about this morning, that we studied in Your Word, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be soft so that the seed of Your Word can penetrate our hearts and take root so that it might produce fruit for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.